Welcome to Commercial Real Estate Investing from A to Z, the ultimate guide for real estate investors. I'm your host, Steph Boldrini. We cover everything you need to know from finding and analyzing properties to financing and managing your investments. Tune in every week for experts' insights and tips so you can make your commercial real estate dreams come true. And in today's episode, we are covering a step-by-step process for building a project from scratch, who are the professionals you should be working with, who will be giving you quotes and getting quotes for you, and also what are some of the legal things that you should keep in mind as the owner of that property. We are chatting with Melissa Anderson from Forge Building Company. Here we go. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us today. We actually met two or more mm-hmm. times before, and you are a wealth of knowledge. So I thought it would be fantastic to have you here. But first, why don't you tell us a little bit about you? Wonderful. Well, thank you, Stephanie. It is a pleasure to be here with you today, and I hope to be able to bring a, a good amount of knowledge to this podcast today. My name is Melissa. I'm with Forge Building Company. Most of my career has been in the construction industry, uh, starting when I was right out of high school at 18 years old, working for a GC. And throughout my career, I've worked in different areas of the construction industry. About 20 months ago, I joined up with Forge Building Company, started learning about self-storage, and just absolutely fell in love with it. And up until self-storage, what were you working on? Mainly commercial construction, uh, a lot of federal projects. So working within like federal buildings and and such. Okay. Got to sometimes get clearance for for those things. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) The the clearance for those buildings are are quite extensive. So let's say that someone wants to build a project from scratch. Okay. What would be the step by step by step that that person would have to take from who do they have to contact first all the way to the team that they need to work with until completion? That's a great question. So like with any kind of construction project, the first thing you're going to need is a piece of land. And so when you start looking for that that perfect piece of land in the right place that allows you to build, you can narrow down specific markets that you know that there is demand in those markets, possibly that they're growing. You can see that there isn't a lot of inventory in those areas. And so you start diving into property that's available in those areas. The other route of going is you start looking for pieces of property within a market or an area that you typically are close to or that you have special interest in. When you do it that way, you have to really understand the market and know if there is demand. Because as much as like, for instance, I live in Boise, Idaho. If I wanted to build in an area in which I lived in, I would know that I would be competing heavily against new construction and a lot of self-storage development in this area. So you have to take that into consideration when you're looking for that parcel or that piece of land. Once you find that piece of land, you're going to start digging into what 
the entitlement process is going to be. First and foremost, you're going to look at that planning and zoning. How is it zoned, basically? And one of the biggest things that I'll tell people is do not assume that just because it is zoned commercial or business or light industrial, that it means that you can put self-storage there. You need to dig a little bit deeper and find out what the acceptable land use is for that piece of property. The last thing you want to do is go into an agreement, purchase a piece of property and find out that you cannot build or on that parcel. And you may have to go through a rezoning process, which could take six months, six to 12 months. You may have to get a special use permit or a conditional use permit. So it's really important to find out what is the acceptable use of land. And of course, you will be talking to people within the city Oh. Absolutely. And so you, once you see what the, the parcel is and what it's zoned, you're going to need to identify who is the, what jurisdiction has authority, whether it's the city, the county, a township, and then you're going to want to start talking to them. You're going to want to see what is the approval process in order to build on this piece of property. And this is also a great opportunity to find out how they feel about self-storage. If you're going into a municipality that has a really bad taste in their mouth, they're going to put up every hurdle they possibly can because they don't want you to build self-storage. And so that is something to be taken into consideration when you are looking at that piece of property and before you close on it. Do you have any horror CDs that you have worked with in the past? It sounds like <sighs> you may be thinking of some examples right now. <laughs> We, we have a couple. Um, I was working with some developers that were looking to build specifically in Canyon County here locally. And because of what they were wanting to develop on their piece of property, they were going to have to have an office, which means that they were going to have to have water ran to the site. Well, it was in the county. However, it was on the path of being annexed into the city. And so basically what the county did was said, well, we're not really interested in going and jumping through all these hoops to get you water. We just want you to wait until you're annexed into the city. Mm -hmm. And so that basically put them on a path of, well, wait, you don't know exactly when that's going to happen. They'll say, oh, you know, that'll happen within the one to two years. Well, that's not a, a very good feeling when you're wanting to go into contract on a piece of land. Mm -hmm. uh, did that end up happening or no? Uh, they are looking at ways of getting around bringing the water to the site. And mm -hmm. so we are changing the phasing approach on that development to possibly, you know, develop the buildings that are in the back first that aren't going to necessarily require water and that they're not going to have an office on site. And so that they can start utilizing that property, getting some income rolling in before they are building that storefront in, in the front of the property that is going to require that water. So they're basically buying some time. Okay. And up until now in the process, is there a particular profession that could take on all of this work for you? Is it the architect or uh, some sort of engineer that could do all of these steps up until now? So I highly yeah. recommend um, working with an architect. 
Um, however, before you start going too far down that entitlement process, I highly recommend going into a market feasibility study and looking at the site layout to see if the numbers are going to pencil. So that is, you know, looking to see if there's demand in that area. How much can you potentially develop on that piece of property to give you the income that you're looking for? And if all of those numbers, you know, come out favorable, then start going towards that entitlement process. And when you start doing this entitlement and you're going to start talking with the city, you're going to have planning meetings, uh, you're going to need to engage in a civil to show what the topography is of the land and what you may have to do for drainage. That's when I would highly recommend bringing in an architect because they are subject matter experts when it comes to that. And they understand the you know, the vernacular and the words that need to be used when they are working with the city or the county. And if you can find an architect that is familiar with that jurisdiction, they're going to know the key players and they're going to know what hurdles they're, that are potentially going to be there because they've gone through it before on other projects. Definitely. And after that, so let's say you do get it entitled, who mm -hmm. should you start working with at that point? So you have your property entitled and the next phase is what I would call the design phase. That's when you are going to have your civil engineer, your architect's going to start working on elevations, a lot of the details of the building. If the jurisdiction has design requirements, that is going to be, you know, working up those architectural drawings to show that you're meeting the design requirements of that municipality. For instance, let's say that on the street front, they don't want to see any of the metal paneling. So in that case, you're going to have to look at other exterior finishes such as stucco, split face veneer, CMU, and they're probably going to want it to be aesthetically pleasing. If you're in an environment where they have very strict design elements that they want, for instance, to say that they want it to match the feel and the look of the rest of the city, then that architect's going to understand what elements to put into the construction documents. And that's basically what you're doing during the design phase. You are building the construction documents that are going to basically give the subcontractors or the trades that are going to be working on this project. It's going to give them all the very specific details of what they need to bid on the project and what will be executed during the time of construction. And it's in this stage that companies like yours will be in that part of that planning? Yes, absolutely. So uh, the three players that are part of the design phase, the three main ones are the architect, the civil engineer, and the structural engineer. Um, at Forge, we're a design build company. And so we provide the structural engineering on um, projects single story to multi-story to canopies, we provide that structural engineering piece. One of the reasons that it's so important to pull us in during this design phase is that we can provide insight to the architect to make the building as efficient as possible for the construction. Uh, for instance, the way that you lay out your units in conjunction with the way that the roof is framed is going to minimize how much steel you're going to use during that development of the project. And so we can come in and I can take a look at a, of a plan set right away and say, ooh, we have the aisles running the wrong direction. 
we can do this. We can absolutely build it this way, but there's going to be so many more headers and steel beams that what we absolutely need. So if we change the orientation of the hallways to go the opposite direction, it is going to be the most cost of effective approach to building that building. And who would be responsible for getting quotes from all of the vendors, the GC? Yes, the G GC, the construction management company, if somebody is thinking that they're going to take it on themselves and be their own GC, I'm always very cautious about that because if it's like you're just going to do an expansion, maybe it's just one building and you're expanding on an already existing facility and you've done it before. Okay, great. If it's a full development of a facility, there is a lot of construction management that goes in. I mean, if you think about it, you're going to have a dozen different trades. Every one of those trades are going to go into a legal binding contract with you. Not only that, you are going to have to be responsible for budget and timelines and progress payments and insurance. There is so much to manage. So I always recommend going with a construction management company or a GC that has experience with self-storage, and then they can provide that piece of management that is needed for the development. So once you have your construction documents put together, usually you're going to want at least a 75% completion of those construction documents, which you're trying to get to the 100% because you want to take those construction documents and get them into permitting. Permitting with the different jurisdictions is going to take different amounts of time. And as you're doing this development, time is always of the essence. And so you're trying to get through it as quickly as possible. So while those construction documents are being finished up, the last 25%, the GC or the construction management company can take those documents, send them out to the different trades and subs and start gathering those preliminary numbers from those trades and putting together that budget. There are things that will go wrong at any mm -hmm. given time. What are some of the main things regarding legal to keep in mind when negotiating with anyone, a GC or a vendor? Oh, this one's kind of tricky because I can look at it from the subcontractor point of view, which is typically where Forge is, is where the steel contractor. And then there is the GC's point of view on they're looking out for their best interests. And then there's the owner that's looking out for their best interests. So in the end, I mean, when I start looking I mean, at what, legal... what is fair, right? Let's talk about yes. what's fair for everybody, right? If I offer a product, of course, my product has to perform. So... Yes. And somebody paid for that to perform, right? So what is fair where there is a win-win for everybody? I think uh, when it really comes down to it, there's some key parts of any contract. Time is really important. Wanting to know how quickly you can get the project done and what obligations each person is going to have for those. So Having realistic expectations is important. If the GC, for instance, I've seen this in projects where the GC really wants this owner's work, right? And they'll say, yeah, yeah, we can get the project done in nine months. And now all of a sudden that owner, it has that expectation of nine months. Well, as you start working with all the subs, it may not be that. And so I really encourage owners to have realistic expectations and say, okay, I understand that that is maybe the best case scenario. Give me the worst case scenario. 
and ask what are some things that could go wrong in the timeline of construction? Or if you, on the flip side, let's say a contractor comes back and they say, okay, it's going to take us 12 months to get this done. Okay, can you give me a sequence of work? And then once you have that sequence of work, you can go back to the GC and say, is there any way we can be more efficient with this? Can you go back to your trades? And is there any way that we could figure out a way to get three weeks off or four weeks off? And so I think that that is one of the biggest things when you start looking at the contracts is the timelines. And then, of course, you know, the contractual amounts, when are you going to be paid, the insurance. Insurance is a really big thing, making sure that the GC has the correct general liability and builder's risk insurance, and that they are also making sure that all of their subs have it. And then, of course, one of probably the biggest things is safety. Is it a GC that values a safe working environment? And are they holding their subs to the exact same um, requirements of making sure that they have a safety program in place and that they have a way of enforcing it? And I don't know if there is anything else to add to this question, but are there any other best practices for construction of self-storage alone? And then we'll we'll go into the RV construction best practices, if you have anything to add. So I think that, you know, really working with a team that understands self-storage is going to be the best practice you can have. You may know an architect, and, and I see this quite often. I have a lot of people coming into this industry, and I talk to a lot of those people that have been in um, multifamily construction, or they've been in residential or even commercial construction. And they say, oh, yeah, yeah, I have an architect that I use all the time. And my first question is, are they familiar with self-storage? Because self-storage, building self-storage is not necessarily complex, but it is different. And you need to have the people in your team that understand self-storage itself. And so I would say the biggest best practice is engaging with those and building your team with those that understand uh, what you're building. If someone doesn't live in a particular area that they are building, how should they make sure that they're not getting overcharged for any of the items? Let's say you, you've built a relationship with the GC. And by this time, you've vetted them out and you've probably gotten competitive bids. The next thing to do is to get competitive bids for each of the trades and to make sure that they're bidding apples to apples. And now the construction documents should make it very clear what each individual should be bidding. But there are times you need to dig a little deeper. And having a GC or a construction manager that really understands how to go through those bids and make sure that it's apples to apples. Once you get to that apples to apples, you're gonna look at what is the best price. Now let's say that there's a huge discrepancy. That does not necessarily mean go with the lowest number because there is a possibility that somebody may have missed something or that there could be a change order coming down the road. So looking at those numbers, getting an idea of, okay, you know, let's say you got three of them two of them are within reason of each other. Well, that's a pretty good indicator that that's probably a fair number. Now, if you get three bids and they're all over the place, that's usually an indication that they're not bidding the same thing. Are there any specific best practices for construction of RV and boat storage? 
So when building boat and RV, the biggest thing that comes to mind is making sure that you have an adequate amount of drive aisle. People that are driving these 40-foot Class A RVs need to have enough room to get into either the enclosed boat and RV or into the canopy-only space. Or when you angle your spaces, it does make it so where you don't have to have as much of a drive aisle. Typical rule of thumb is if it is parallel, let's say it's perpendicular to the drive aisle and it's a 40-foot space, I would say no less than 50 feet for that drive aisle. 55 would be even better. If you angle it at 60 degrees, now you are looking at possibly even a 40-foot drive aisle. Or if you if you had to, you could go down to that 35-foot. And then, of course, if you go to that 45-degree angle, you're going to need probably 40, 45 feet. And I know that RVs have things that they need to dump. And yes. pardon my lack of terminology <laughs> here because that's not my thing. <laughs> Driving RVs around. Do all RV storage must provide that in your opinion? Or would it be okay to not have that? I think it depends on what kind of boat and RV facility that you're providing. We see plenty that have canopy only and they don't provide a dump and wash station. A Class A facility most likely is going to provide that amenity because it is catering to those that are willing to pay more in the rent because it is a Class A and it does have those extra bells and whistles. Makes sense. Wow, this has been wonderful, Melissa, as always. Um, is there anything else that we have not covered that you think is important for our audience to know? Well, I think that, as I mentioned before, when it really comes down to is working with those that are subject matter experts that are able to be a resource to you uh, in several different facets and uh, working with those that have experience in self-storage. And clearly you are one of them. So how <laughs> can our listeners Stephanie. get in touch with you? Well, you can uh, visit uh, Forge's website at forgebuildingswithans.com. There is a way that you can send a message through the website or you can request a quote. You can also send me an email at manderson, and that's S-O-N, at forgebuildingswithans.com. Or you can reach out to me uh, on my phone number is 208-286-8928. Melissa, thank you so much for making the time and coming here today to share your knowledge. I really, really appreciate it. Great. It was great being here, Stephanie. Thanks so much for having me. And if you haven't already, we would really appreciate a review on our podcast. It is because of ongoing reviews that our podcast will pop up higher on the searches. And if you are learning something from these podcasts, please take a few seconds to write a review. And I would love to thank one of our latest reviewers. Uh, is actually a friend who started listening from the beginning. John Cox, thoughtful and informative. I enjoy hearing investment insights from a wide variety of industry professionals. Thank you so much, John. I, uh, I'm not sure if you're at this episode yet, but when you get here, I just want you to know that I'm grateful for your review and I will see you next time.